Well, before this morning's message, I want to say a brief word and pray about something that has been in the headlines this past week, something which has an indirect impact on our church since we identify with the Southern Baptist Convention. As many of us read with horror, the Houston Chronicle this week ran a multi-part story exposing sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches which involved over 700 victims with 220 predators um, proven guilty and others who were credibly accused, in some cases multiple times, and in many cases they continued on in ministry. The cover-up, the sweeping under the rug, the looking the other way, Uh, was as troubling and as hard to read as the crimes themselves. It's horrible stuff. It's horrible that this stuff happened, uh, but it's good that it has been exposed. It's hard for us to talk about this on a Sunday morning, but it's right for us, right for us to lament publicly together. It's right for us to pray together uh, for the victims, for the violators, and for those who were complicit. And it's good for us to a fresh resolve that we will continue to take serious measures to prevent abuse at Desert Springs Church. From uh, background checks to, with our, uh, our children's workers to uh, surveillance throughout the building, especially in classrooms and in hallways, and, uh, and also a, a soon coming written formal policy Uh, which you'll hear about in days to come, which simply, in some ways, codifies and puts in black and white what's already assumed and already practiced around here. Now, praise God, there have been no known cases of sexual or physical abuse at Desert Springs Church. But should that ever happen, we are resolute that we will contact the authorities immediately and we will cooperate with any investigations that go on. By God's grace, there will never be any sweeping under the rug or looking the other way. And if you have any questions about any of our policies or procedures, any even suggestions about our policies or procedures in these matters, feel free to reach out uh, to Tim Bradley, our children's and family pastor. Now let's pray for these things. Would you bow with me? Oh, Lord, we hate sin. Help us to hate it more. We thank you for these times when we can see sin for as ugly as it is. And we're sobered by the reality that any one of us could do these things except for the grace of God. And we're sobered by the reality, Lord, that every sin is rebellion against you. And yet some sins really do have severe consequences. And so, Lord, we pray for these victims mentioned in these news articles. Lord, we pray for your comfort. We pray for encouragement. We pray for your presence. We pray for those who, in some terms, have given up on the faith because of something that happened at a church. Perhaps, Lord, in your graciousness, one day you would lead them to salvation and show them saving mercy. We pray, Lord, for those who have committed these crimes. Lord, we pray for repentance where that has not yet been felt or seen. We pray, Lord, for salvation where that's needed. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gospel which covers our sin. We thank you for a gospel which extends to the worst of sinners. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that holds out hope to the hurting and to those who have done heinous things. Lord, we pray for those who have been complicit in some of these things. We pray for repentance where that's needed. We pray for honesty and confession. We pray for a change in our denomination. We pray for wisdom going forward as individual churches and as a denomination. 
And Lord, we pray for your protection. However wise we try to be, however strategic and thoughtful, however alert and vigilant we want to be, we recognize, Lord, you are the one that protects us. Protect us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray once again you'd show us your glory. We'd show us, show us your kindness. Show us your power. Show us your glorious plan to save. We thank you for it and thank you for your word and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Exodus 4 in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me ask whether you've ever been reluctant to do the right thing, reluctant to trust God, maybe reluctant to obey him, maybe you've at times been reluctant to share the gospel with a friend even when the circumstances were such that it's just sitting there on a platter ready to be served up and you don't. Maybe at times you've been hesitant to give sacrificially and routinely to the local church. Maybe you've wrestled with having a hard talk with a wayward friend or someone who has sinned against you. Maybe some of us have delayed marriage or delayed having kids simply because of the fear of the unknown. Why are we reluctant why do we sometimes drag our feet and make excuses? Well, it's because even when good and right things seem obvious, they also sometimes seem hard, beyond our abilities, intimidating, or uncertain. Uncertain about the reaction of someone else. Uncertain about how it will turn out. It's maybe because at times we... We can't see how we get from point A to point Z, and so we barely take the next step. Well, I'm sure all of us can relate to some of this stuff. And if so, then we can probably relate to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, because Moses was reluctant. We saw that last week in Exodus 3. Moses was reluctant. And this week, it gets worse before it gets better. His reluctance will actually turn to refusal before God patiently, kindly, but firmly overcomes it and has his way with his man on his way to God's call and commission. That's what Exodus 3 and 4 are about, Moses' call or commission. Remember, God has said that he's going to free his people, the Israelites, from cruel Egyptian slavery. He's going to set them free. He's going to bring them to the land. And God told Moses that he's going to use him, Moses, as God's mouthpiece, as God's instrument, as God's representative. Moses will speak to Pharaoh representing God. Chapter 3, verse 10, God said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And as I said last week, in total, over the span of chapter 3 and chapter 4, Moses responds to this call of God five different times, five different ways. Two of them were last week in Exodus 3, like verse 11, where Moses asked, oh, Who am I to do that, God? And God answered by trying to get his attention off of Moses and onto God, and God promised to be with him. And then the other one in verse 13 where Moses responds to this call by saying, well, what if the people come to me and ask what the name of the God is that has sent me to them? What shall I say? And God graciously, kindly revealed his personal covenant name, Yahweh. I am. I am who I am. I am the Lord in all caps in our English Bibles. And then God repeated again for Moses what's going to happen in with greater detail. All that should have been more than enough for Moses to trust God, to step out, to do what God said to do. I think it's verse 18 of chapter 3 where God said, go. But in Exodus 4, instead the conversation, or maybe we should say the debate, continues. Let's read Exodus 4 together. It'll take us about five minutes, but it will be well worth our time. 
Then Moses answered. Remember, we're picking up in a conversation. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Well, there are six turns in this chapter, some shorter, some longer, but six turns that we want to identify. And let me suggest that with each of them, there's sort of a give and a take. There's a, a point and a counterpoint. There's a point A and a point B to it. 
So with the first, we have Moses' skepticism in God's signs. Moses' skepticism is met with God's signs. Again, we saw last week the two questions of chapter 3. But now in chapter 4, it's an objection to God's plan to use Moses. They will not believe me. They will not listen to me. Well, as we said last week, from one angle, this is somewhat understandable. And so for a little bit, we can sympathize, for Mo- sympathize with Moses. Of course, Moses had been in exile now 40 years. Before that, he was raised as an Egyptian for most of his childhood. He was raised in the palace of Pharaoh apart from his early days at his nursing mom's home. He had fled out of Egypt, remember, because he had killed a man. He was wanted for murder there. And besides, the one time when he did try to reconcile two Hebrews who were in a fight, they said, who are you, man? Get out of here. They had no time for him. So it's somewhat understandable that Moses thinks the people won't believe that God has appointed him the Old Testament Messiah, essentially. Except that Moses has already been told by God that they will listen to you. Chapter 3, verse 18. They will listen to your voice, God said. And so now, in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses is blatantly contradicting God. Not even in question form. Not just circling back. Now, God, you said this. Did you really mean that? Could you explain that again? Could you give me some proof? No, it's behold, they will not believe or listen to me. But once again, God corrects Moses gently and patiently, not with a backhand the other side of the moon, but with giving him three signs, three miracles. These are for Moses, but also For the people later on when Moses comes to them, they will be able to believe Moses' words about what God is up to because of these accompanying signs. A stick turns into a snake and then back into a stick. Moses' hand becomes leprous and then becomes clean. And if those two don't convince the people, there's a third. Water from the Nile that turns to blood. Now, with each of these signs, there's something much more going on than just the miracle. It's not just God's power over over animals and elements and creation and health. These signify things. These are symbolic. So you take the snake. The snake was sort of like Egypt's mascot. If Egypt had a football team, they would have been called the cobras. They were obsessed with cobras and snakes. And so we've all seen pictures of pharaohs and their headdress was mimicking a cobra that was about ready to strike. So God was saying in this miracle of the stick slash snake slash stick that God has power over the cobra Egypt. He brings nations into existence and snuffs them out. He'll use Moses to do it. Moses will grab the tail of the cobra Egypt and turn it into a stick. As for leprosy, well, leprosy was a huge problem in ancient Egypt. Leprosy only went one way. Once you got it, you kept getting it. It kept getting worse. There was no cure for leprosy. But here... It's healed immediately. Moses' hand becomes leprous. Oh no, that's it. I'm done. No, just put it back in your coat. It's no longer leprous. God is the one who curses and makes clean. He's the one who heals and, and, and brings disease. And as for the water from the Nile that was turned into blood or would be turned into blood eventually... Well, the Egyptians literally worshipped the Nile. They believed it was divine. They believed it gave life. And it literally did, you could say, in an ecological sense. 
the Nile fed Egypt. It was the primary water source. It provided vegetation. So for God to take water from the Nile, rather Moses, for Moses to take water from the Nile and and for God to turn it to blood, it was to show God's power over Egyptian gods, but it was also showing his power to turn what is life-giving into something dead. So these are signs which invite faith. They don't create faith. Pharaoh will see some big miracles in days ahead, but he won't believe. But Moses is to believe. And the people of Israel, the elders that Moses will speak to in due course, they should believe. These miracles are meant to authenticate Moses and his message. He is God's man. He is representing God. God is with him. They authenticate, but they also illustrate, right? They illustrate what God is going to do in the days ahead. And so it was with the miracles of Jesus in the gospel accounts. Jesus' miracles were not ends in themselves. They authenticated who he said he was and is, and they also illustrated what he came to do. What kind of miracles did Jesus do? Well, he he fed the hungry, he healed the sick and the blind and the deaf and the lame. He even raised the dead. And aren't these metaphors in the Bible for our spiritual state apart from God's grace? We're born, spiritually speaking, deaf, blind, lame, dead. Spiritually speaking, we're hungry and thirsty. And Jesus' miracles not only care for the need at the moment in the people experiencing hunger or pain or limitations of some sort, they preach, they proclaim, they illustrate. Now back to Moses. Secondly, we come to Moses' ineloquence and its irrelevance. Moses' ineloquence is irrelevant. You'd think that after these miracles, Moses would, you know, start packing up, start moving on. But no. Oh, my Lord, verse 10, I am not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And we can't know for sure exactly what this means. It may mean that Moses had a, a bit of a stutter It may mean he had some kind of speech impediment or funny accent. It might just mean that he wasn't that eloquent. You know, he didn't think he had the power of persuasion and didn't have impressive speech, which you would ideally want to have, humanly speaking, when you're going to represent God to Pharaoh. But whatever his verbal shortcomings were, they didn't matter. They didn't matter. So God responds, Who has made man's mouth? Verse 11. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm sovereign over these things. Whatever your speech is or isn't, Moses, it's from me. I'm behind it. Isn't this so instructive in general about human weakness and giftings? Each of us is a unique combination of strengths and weaknesses. We might wish we had someone else's combination of strengths and weaknesses. We might admire or even covet someone else's gifts. And certainly we're not presuming in the least that there isn't something about improving who we are, improving our talents and gifts. Certainly we're not minimizing that there's such a thing as environment or what sociologists call nurture. And yet, there is a time to rest in and trust God's sovereign orchestration of our specific combination of strengths and weaknesses. God is not only not limited by your weakness, he actually intends to use your weaknesses for his glory. Paul's letter called 2 Corinthians in the Bible, it highlights this theme more than any other that I know of. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that we have the treasure of the gospel in these jars of clay, these bodies which are frail and dry and, and, and fragile. And we have the gospel in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul will boast in his weakness. He says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How? Well, because God's strength shines through. And so we thank God for gifts. We, we thank God for strengths, but we never trust in them. And in fact, we can lean on our weaknesses as God is teaching Moses here. Besides, this Exodus thing is so big that it could never rest on Moses' eloquence or quick-wittedness or his powerful speech as if he had it. No. The only point is that God will be with him. That's what matters most. Not his eloquence, not his persuasion. God will be with him and will tell him what to say. I'll be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. Now, therefore, go. As I said last week, this stuff parallels Christian proclamation quite well, doesn't it? Now, we're not all Moseses. Moses is a special dude. He got a special calling. None of us will probably get a burning bush that isn't consumed speaking to us. We're not prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word. But there is something relatable to the Christian since every Christian has been called to go and tell and that's kind of what Moses is being told here. We Christians have been told to go and make disciples of all nations and Jesus said, behold, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. In Luke 24, he told us what we need to tell people as we make disciples. He said, you go and you proclaim among the nations the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You don't know what to say to a non-Christian? Someone asks you sometime maybe, what is the gospel? What's the essence of what you believe? And you, you clam up. You don't know what to say? Luke 24 helps you. The death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's a start. That's a great, great start. So we know our mission. It's been clear. It's been repeated in the gospel account. And yet, like Moses, we Christians are at times tempted to say, but I'm not good at it. I'm not eloquent. I'm not persuasive. I... I I won't know some answers to some questions I will get. And then what? They won't listen to me. I'm telling you, God, they won't believe if I'm the messenger. Well, you know what? If it depended on your eloquence and your knowledge and your quick thinking, then you're right. They wouldn't believe. They never would. Only God can give faith. Only God can grant repentance. Only God can turn hearts. Only God can open spiritual eyes. But he does use human messengers. Frail, weak, stupid human messengers like me and you. He chooses to use us to get the word out. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. We often quote Charles Spurgeon around here, the Baptist preacher of the 1800s. Well, do you know the story of his conversion? It's been a while since I've mentioned that, so I think I'll mention it again. At age 15, Spurgeon went to church one snowy Sunday morning. And because of the snow, the regular preacher was unable to come, and so a willing but untrained layman got the last-minute assignment of stepping in for the sermon. And he took for his text Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. Spurgeon's autobiography tells the rest of the story in Spurgeon's own words. 
Spurgeon says, he had not much to say. Thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me, at any rate, except his text. He says, then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting. And he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, look, look, young man, look now. Spurgeon says, then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. Now, don't you love it? He had not much to say. Thank God, except his text. And that's all Spurgeon needed to be saved. Every time we speak for Christ, we have no idea what God is going to do. Someone might be moved from darkness to light right then, by God's grace, by his doing. Someone might be moved from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of God's beloved son right then through you. If you know enough about the gospel to be saved, you have enough of the gospel to give it away for someone else to be saved. We don't know what God will do, but we know what he can do, and we know what he sometimes does, and we know what he has called us to do. Go back to Moses again. Number three, we see Moses' refusal in God's mixed response. Moses' refusal. His reluctance turns to outright refusal in these direct and succinct words in verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses is out of questions. He's out of excuses. Now he just protests. Get someone else. Anyone else. Not me. Well, God's response to this is mixed. On the one hand, his anger was kindled against Moses. And the amazing thing there is not that God was angry at this point, but how amazingly patient and gentle he had been all up until this point. It's also amazing how short of a comment it is and how quickly it turns to something more gracious. Apart from one brief word about God's anger, which is there, let's not minimize it, but the rest of the response is gracious again as God offers Moses a helper, a, a partner, his brother Aaron, family, blood. He speaks well, he'll go with you, and he will speak for you. This is how it'll go. Moses, I'll speak to you, God says. You will tell it to Aaron, and then Aaron will speak to the people. Now, that's not always how it's going to work going forward as we read on in Exodus. Sometimes Moses will do plenty of the speaking, sometimes with Aaron there, sometimes without Aaron there. But God here graciously gives Moses a partner. He acquiesces to Moses's weak, sinful feelings of inadequacy by giving him a partner. Not a one-to-one not a -one partner like they're right alongside each other, like, you know, John Baker and Poncharello or Bo and Luke Duke or something. No, this is, uh, for Aaron, Moses is like God because he hears from God and represents God and speaks on God's behalf. But, but how kind of God to give Moses and Aaron. And with that, God issues another final charge to go in verse 17. And take your hand this staff. Take in your hand this staff. That's the end of this conversation. And don't miss the comedic value here. God has been patient. And yet God now eventually, he, he ends the, the conversation simply with this. Don't forget about your staff. Go on now. Answer your questions. 
heard a couple of protests, you refused, well, don't forget about your staff. It's like a little boy who doesn't want to go to school and he's giving excuses to mom and asking questions of mom about why he has to go and mom has been patiently answering his questions and explaining again why school is good and don't worry, your brother will go with you. And the little boy decides to take the direct approach and say, mom, please just let me stay home. And mom just smiles and says, well, don't forget your scarf. You know, don't forget your coat. Go on now. In fact, Drew and Asher and I this week were joking about the number of parenting-like lines that we find in this chapter. What's that in your hand? Does that sound familiar? Put that down. Pick that up. Put your hand in your coat. Go find your brother. Don't forget your stick. Fourthly, we see Moses' departure and God's predetermination, verses 18 to 23. Moses departs. He obeys, finally. Well, there's some necessary steps involved, like uh, getting the blessing from your father-in-law before you leave. But soon Moses, with wife and children, that family is together on donkeys, heading for Egypt. Moses is living that Martin Luther song, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. And the staff here is is playing a prominent role again. You see verse 20, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It's now the staff of God because of what God is doing in this plain, simple shepherd's Staff. Remember, Moses had been a shepherd among the Midianites for 40 years. Now he was leaving that lifestyle, but God was saying, take your staff with you. One, because so much power would be done through this staff. Yes, it would, be, uh, it would show signs to the elders. It would show signs to Pharaoh and his minions. It, it, would, it would do this mighty thing at the Red Sea, as we shall see. But it's also just a shepherd's staff. Moses will show up in Egypt with a shepherd's staff and not sheep. That's going to stand out. That's going to be weird. Well, but it's emblematic of God's power through weakness. It's a symbol of God taking what is, what is ordinary and doing the extraordinary with it. And it also symbolizes not just what's going to happen through that staff in the miraculous, but also what Moses will do with it once they leave Egypt. He'll lead the people. He'll shepherd the people. He'll still be a shepherd now of people. And so all this is sure. The plan is sure. It's predetermined. And so in verses 21 to 23, we get more precise detail about how this is going to go down. God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, do the miracles I told you to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel's my firstborn son. So let my son go that he may serve me, not you. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now there's some details in verses 21 to 23 that we will unpack when we get to them in the narrative as they actually happen. Here we're just told what's going to happen. And when we get to things like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, which will come up many more times going forward, will take some time to think about that carefully and theologically. What's that mean? What's that not mean? But we'll wait for it to actually happen. The point for now is simply that it is sure. It is going to happen. This is God's plan. From the miracles to the use of Moses to Pharaoh's heart, to that bloody Passover night. It's all God's plan for his son, for his people. 
his firstborn son. He's the father who cares for his people. That's why he's doing this. He's the father who's drawing his people out into his presence for his worship. He's the father and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who's made great covenant promises to these people and will bring them to pass. Fifth, we come to Moses' disobedience and his wife's deliverance. Verses 24 to 26 is that paragraph that you may have noticed when I read it is just strange weird to us. It's the most difficult section by far in our passage. In fact, Phil Riken comments that these are some of the most enigmatic verses in the Old Testament. Let me remind you, verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, I think that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now the questions about those verses are almost limitless and most of them are unanswerable. So we'll do something we don't normally do. We're not going to talk long about the unanswerable questions. I leave that to your kitchen table this afternoon or to your community group later this week. I'm sure you'll have a great time thinking of all the questions about this passage. And what you'll find out eventually is that, yeah, there's just not enough data here to know exactly what is happening. But here are some things that I either know are happening slash um, think are happening. Five things. They'll go from certain to less certain. Number one, apparently God takes circumcision quite seriously in the Old Covenant. Genesis 17, there God instituted circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. It was to be done on every male child who's part of the covenant. It was a physical sign of what needed to be done spiritually. The flesh, the sin, had to be cut off, removed, and pulled out, you could say. Now, by the way, when Jesus comes, he comes to bring the real deal. And so he removes circumcision. He, you could say, is the circumcision. You could say he circumcises our hearts so that we don't need some sort of external sign. You can read Colossians 2 about that. But in the Old Covenant, God took circumcision quite seriously. The second thing we see here is that Moses apparently had not circumcised his son and apparently knew to do so. Why? Well, I don't know. That's one of those unanswerable questions. Well, Why did it take so long for God to get angry about this one? We, again, unanswerable questions. But third, we can see here clearly that God was angry with Moses for not circumcising his son. He was so angry, he was ready to kill him. Well, what would that mean for the grand plan of things? Unanswerable question. Let's stick with what we know. What we think we know, fourth, is somehow Moses' wife knew that God was angry with Moses and she stepped in with a quick circumcision and God relented. How'd she know? Nope, that's for your community group or your kitchen table. Fifth, Zipporah apparently, and here's where I'm less sure, but kind of sure, Zipporah was apparently angry about all this. Either angry at Moses because he didn't circumcise his son, or more likely she's angry at God, the God of this bloody religion. It seems as though she's, she threw the foreskin at Moses' feet. I'm a bridegroom of blood. No, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Well, it's a complicated passage to be sure. There's some things we know and things we can learn about God's holiness, about obedience, about, about intercession, uh, about the covenant sign. And then we'll move on. Sixth and lastly, we come to a brotherly reunion and a promised recognition. 
And the rest of the chapter from this point on moves quite quickly. The puzzle pieces have already been laid out. We just got to snap them in place as they happen. So Aaron and Moses meet on the journey to Egypt. God had apparently spoken to Aaron to prepare him for that meeting. The reunion happens just as God promised back in verses 14 and 15. And together Aaron and Moses go to Egypt and gather the leaders of Israel just as God told them to do. They relayed to the, to the elders of Israel what God had said, that he's heard their prayers, he's about to act, he's going to break them loose. Moses performed his signs, staff into snake into staff sign, and the hand leprous, then clean sign. And sure enough, just as God promised back in chapter 3, verse 18, they listened. They believed, it says, verse 31 here. They believed when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel. They bowed their heads together and worshipped. So here's this move from reluctance to recognition. Just as God said, he will have his way. He is making progress. So what's the big picture at this point in the story? Well, we'd have to say there is a bigger picture. There's a grand story. It's the whole book of Exodus. And this hardly ends the story. And yet, here at the end of chapter 4, I think we can, we can see that the lines are drawn. The teams are now drawing up, you could say. You know how you'd pick teams, kickball in the playground at school? Well, the, the teams are becoming clear at this point. The sides are clear. You can just go through the characters in the story and realize that Moses took some convincing, didn't he? He took some convincing. And eventually he came around and headed out. But then one night at a hotel, we weren't so sure how this was going to go with Moses. What side is he on? Who is he for? Who, is God for him or against him? And then Zipporah stepped in. As for Zipporah herself, we're not sure where she is in her standing with the Lord. But with Aaron, we sure are. He's with the Lord, and he is with God's servant Moses. So are the elders of Israel. They are with the Lord. They are with his servant Moses. And as for Pharaoh, we know he will never join that side. He will never switch teams, no matter what he sees, no matter what he hears. So I ask you today, where are you? Choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua will later say in the book of Joshua. Where are you? Are you reluctant? Are you refusing? Or do you recognize? An old hymn goes like this, who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. And, and notice that word, Savior. In that hymn, that should remind us, especially put alongside our passage, that God, in time, sent a deliverer, a capital D deliverer, a spokesman with a capital S, and he was not at all reluctant. He quoted Isaiah, I have come to do your will, O Lord. In the middle of Luke, we get to this point, I think it's 951, where Jesus turned his face to go to Jerusalem. Before that, he'd been teaching and wandering about and here and there, and then, boom, he's headed to the cross for you and for me. And he kept his face towards Jerusalem and toward the cross. Yes, that night, when he was betrayed, as he prayed in the garden, he asked if there be any other way 
Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was a willing savior. Hebrews 12 even puts it in terms like this, that the the founder of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, he had joy set before him when he endured the cross. Oh, he didn't enjoy the crucifixion. No, he endured the cross. In fact, he despised its shame. But in light of the resurrection, in light of the victory on the other side, it was joy set before him, even going to the cross. I pray you know that you have this kind of willing, perfect, obedient, complete messenger, advocate, deliverer, savior. He covers our sins and he commissions us to go and represent him to the world. May we continue to do that boldly, not reluctantly, not half-heartedly. May we not refuse his call, but embrace it in worship. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your purposes to save and to show your glory. Lord, we thank you for the grandeur of your plan. We thank you for this story in Exodus 4 and for all that it means for the grand story of salvation in time and history. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for, Lord Jesus, for you being such a willing Savior. Uh, to be willing to go to the cross for us. But we stand in awe. We say once again, how great you are. Help us to sing of your greatness now with joy and faith for your glory.